This week's episode of Popular Modcast is brought to you by The Summit, Novation's flagship two-part 16-voice polyphonic synthesizer. Summit's digital new Oxford oscillators offer subtractive, FM, and wavetable synthesis and feed into genuine analog dual filters, distortion, and VCAs. The multi-channel engine enables merging and combining of two complete and independent patches, while up to 16 simultaneous voices deliver enough harmonic depth for even the richest pads. And you guessed it, this patch playing below my voice right now was made on Minervation Summit. If you want to learn more, click the link in the show description. Welcome back to Podger the Modcast. My name is Tim Held, and as you can see, I'm sporting my new uh, Southern California gear. Had a great trip out in Palm Springs, went to Joshua Tree, all sorts of fun stuff. And uh, yes, I shot some cool videos. So those will be coming soon. Uh, but let's talk about today's guest. This week, we have Peter Chapman, who is a film, TV, and video game uh, composer, huge gearhead. We have an awesome chat. Uh, you may know some of his work. He scored the very successful TV show Workin' Moms, Winona Earp, The Lake, um, all sorts of stuff. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk all about that process and how he got into it. But first, some quick business. Right now, we are listening to an artist named Leo Wolf, who just released an album called Shapeshifter, and this track is called This Mirror with Its Mysterious Light. If you would like me to play some of your music and give you a little shout out here on a pod mod intro, go over to the Discord and hit up the, uh, the I believe it's the music recommendations uh, page. Send me a, a, a link to a download or something, and uh, yeah, I can play some of your music. But why haven't I been playing more of your music more often? I don't know, but let's let's just get let's let's do it. Let's get on with it. Um, if you would like to support the show, you could head over to patreon.com forward slash podularmodcast. I appreciate everybody's support there. I also want to take some time during this intro to tell you about the new triphase oscillator from New Systems Instruments. This thing is amazing. Um, it produces three different sawtooth waves at the exact same pitch, but with independent phase control. These are blended in a bipolar CP3 type mixer, giving a rich waveform at the output. By blending in a wave with positive polarity, you reinforce in-phase harmonics, and by blending a wave with a negative polarity, you reduce in-phase harmonics. The phase differences between the waves distribute the harmonics from in-phase to out-of-phase. The result is a comb filter effect, like the effect produced by an acoustic reflection with notches and peaks spaced evenly throughout the frequency range. I'm really enjoying this uh, module. It's got four different outputs. So you have a, a mix output, and then each of the different oscillators has its own mix knob. And then each oscillator also has its own independent output. So for more information, please visit the link in the show description for the triphase oscillator. But before we get into this chat, let's just watch a nice little video of a modular synth poolside in Palm Springs playing some nice, peaceful music. I'm using the triphase oscillator and the uh, spherical wavetable navigator from Forum S, as well as some other cool effects. Links to everything in that patch in the show description. 
Let's check this out. Please enjoy. And then let's get into our episode. And we are rolling with Peter Chapman. How's it going? It's going great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Awesome. I uh, it's funny. I I, uh, I often have this experience where I've shown somebody who's not a musician my studio, right? My, which is really just my a, a bedroom in my house, and I always feel very cool. Like, yeah, that's cool stuff, right? And they're like, this is impressive. But I'm always humbled when I have a guest on like you and I see what you have behind you. And I'm like, no, that's a studio. I mean, I see a Rickenbacker back there, some congas, a giant glockenspiel, a modular, some synths. What is that piano that's higher above the uh, the This? Yeah. That's awesome. That's actually the newest thing I just bought. It's a Janko... Janko table, Tabletop Celeste. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. You know, I it's think funny. I uh, saw you playing that on Instagram. Is it actually? Does it look deceivingly big there? Is it actually kind of small? Or? It is pretty small. It's about. Uh, I mean, it's deep, but it's about half the size of a Rhodes. I think. Okay. It's probably like the Rhodes size of like a Rhodes key bass. Nice. Um, yeah. The story behind that goes like, uh, like years ago, I was watching. Uh, I was watching. A, it was like a live performance of Elliot Smith performing with oh god i always get his name wrong john byrne byrne is that how you say it i can always uh, i never say his name right not um, sure 
Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind. I always get his name mixed up with uh, <laughs> Eternal Sunshine composer. Anyway, I was watching them. Yeah, John Bryan. That's it. So okay. uh, I was watching them perform, and he had all these like cool keyboards in the back. But I remember seeing that, and I was like, "What the hell is that?" I could identify almost everything else, and so I went down this like rabbit hole. And it turns out they're just like they're really hard to find, and. I ended up linking up with this other dude in Toronto who was selling off a bunch of his synths and we clearly have very similar taste in gear. And I ended up uh-huh. a bunch of stuff off of him. And then I like basically <laughs> deleted his number because I just don't, I can't have that guy in my life. Yeah, anymore. yeah. <laughs> it's like deleting your uh, drug dealer's number or something. <laughs> Absolutely. That's exactly what it was like. <laughs> um, so, oh God, I just said it. Yeah, let's. I I kind of want to before we dive too heavily into gear, but you know, just like skimming your uh your Instagram uh profile, I definitely feel like we're we're kindred spirits as well. Like, I uh, you know, it's I'm more into the music making process, but I I find myself very inspired by gear. So I definitely want to get to that. But I want to start with um, uh, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And and take this, it's a bit of a broad question, but I, I like to just have you answer it in any way that you want. Um, mm-hmm. When did music like uh, graft to your soul? And then what was the moment or, you know, the, uh, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The catalyst for you wanting to go from listener to active participant with music? Wow, okay. Um- I have one question. I'm just noticing on the bottom of the screen, mm-hmm. it doesn't look like it's recording my signal. Is that right? Have I got that it, right? It, it, I can see your waveform. It's kind of light, but um, I can also boost that. But if you can... Put, we'll be good? Can, okay. Yeah. I can... Uh, there A lot of the times when I have people on, it's it's like super hot. So when I see that it's oh, a little, weird. You know, smaller, I'm like, oh, I can, this is much easier to work with. But uh, yeah, if you want right, to turn well, your input up... Uh, I'll bump it a little bit. I don't want that to seems overdrive. Much better there. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, and am I clipping on your end? Nope. Okay, good. Okay, so, yeah, uh, when did music... So, yeah, so I grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, on the east coast of Canada, and my dad was a musician, and... Oh, crap, did my thing just die? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Give me one second. I'm sorry. Okay. No problem. I'm going to pause the recording. Okay. Uh, all right. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. So yeah. So, uh, so I start off, um, I grew up in Halifax, Nova Scotia on the East coast of Canada. My dad was a musician and we sort of did like the music. He put me through lessons and all of that stuff. Um, are you talking like young the, kid? Like how old are you here? Yeah. Like I was like, I think I started piano when I was like five or six. Okay. Um, I, okay. So I was growing in, I was, I was born in 80. So so this is like mid '80s when like the keyboards are like kind of a cool thing, you know, mm-hmm. to, to know yeah, how to play. Yeah, the digital age is is coming on, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then there was this moment where I was 12 years old, and I remember it was uh, I saw Nirvana on Saturday Night Live, and at that point, I was just like, I am never playing piano again. This is such a waste of time. And uh, convinced my parents to get me a guitar, and then played guitar all through my teens. Uh, up until uh, it was like I was like in my early twenties, but then I 
I knew early on, like I loved playing in bands and stuff like that, but I feel like I knew early on that I didn't want that to be my profession. Um, I worked in a guitar, like in the used gear store in Toronto for years. And, um, you know, I, I hope this doesn't come across, you know, dis, just like disparagingly, but I saw what happened to bands. Like I saw the sort of arc and unless you were the top of the top of the top of the top, you know, you'd see bands in the shop on their way up and then you'd see them when no one cared about their band anymore. And suddenly, you know, you're 40 and you have like no job experience and yeah, you know, you're kind of in this and it actually, you know, it happened to my roommate. Um, who was in a really awesome band and he pulled it together at the last minute and now he's doing great. But it was like, it was a scary thing. And I, and I knew that like, I didn't want to do that. Now this was also like 2002 when selling out still wasn't really cool. Uh, but I was like, I was like, you know what? I want to write music for commercials. That's what I want to do. Like I, I need to figure out a way that I can make a living doing the only thing that I'm actually good at. So Wait, hold on. I want to. I want to stop you there. When you say the only sure. thing I'm actually good at, like, did you just like have an ear for jingles? Like when you when you started messing around with your instruments, just be like, oh, this would be a good jingle or something. Like when you when you mentioned um, that you're good at it, like what is that? I think it was that I was. Uh, I've always been pretty good at at listening to something and learn and sort of figuring out how to do it. Um, so my sort of musical, my real, like my studio training, I guess, was when I was in high school for Christmas, my dad bought me a four track and I spent, you know, every, every moment of free time I had on that with impulse tracker running on a 486, an old like uh, tracking DOS based tracking program that like sampled and sequenced and stuff. And I just got really into the idea of learning how to do all these different styles. And I think I just knew I was like, this is, I don't know, like it, it seemed to be the only thing I was good at. I was going to school for design. I was not the best designer in the class. I knew that, you know, I'm looking around at people being like, these, this is going to be my competition. Uh, so, so yeah, it was like, I think it was just, an, it, I think it was driven by an obsession. It was that when I was at school, I was watching people that were obsessed with design. And I knew that those were the people that I was going to be competing with once I got out of school. And I was meanwhile going home and just like writing crazy weird music on my mm -hmm. phone track. And it was one of those things where I'm like, I knew at that point, I'm like, this is like what I'm supposed to be doing. I have to figure out how to make this work. I had um, a similar experience with actually made it all the way through, you know, all the thesis on a master's project, but I was playing, oh my band, you know, I, I moved, you know, to, I live in Washington state and I moved to Michigan um, and then, you know, once I was there, I started, you know, hanging out with the, the music scene and yeah, I was playing shows and yeah, didn't finish my, you know, like I said, all the thesis and just came home and started a rock band. Um, right. Yeah. So I get it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I get it, man. Um, but there was a funny thing that happened during that time and it was, so I'm going to school for design. I was allowed one year, they told me, you know, you're allowed to take an elective, any course you want in the, that we offer in the whole school. So I saw there was an audio course taught by a dude named Tom Third. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to take that course because I know I'll be able to just like blast through it and it'll, it won't be stressful and it'll be easy. So I take this course um, and I meet the, the, the teacher, this dude named Tom, and he's, he's awesome. He's like, we get along really great. 
Um, he's super encouraging, but he writes music for TV and film. And so right away, I'm like hanging on every word that he says. He gives us a reading list. I read every single book on it. I watch every movie. Like I'm just obsessed in this course. Um, and the course ends. We stay friends. Then when I go to graduate, um, all my friends are getting graduation email and I'm getting returning, returning student email. And I'm just like, what's up with this? And so I go to student services and they're like, oh, this audio course you took in the second year? Like that doesn't count towards your diploma. You're not going to graduate. And I was like, oh my God, what? Like, so I ended up almost not finishing. I ended up going back and getting this, getting my extra half credit, you know, oh my God. Later, just to make my parents happy. But where it comes full circle is like eight years later, I'm working with this music supervision company. They've been hiring me to do little bits of like what I call scraps, like kind of like things that aren't worth the composer's time on a TV show. So they need like a sound alike, like Frosty the Snowman. They were just like, oh, call Peter. He'll do it. Um, and Tom Third is working on a show called Durham County, but he gets, which is being, um, which this music supervision company is, is working on. And he can't do season two because he's got hired on, he just got hired on a different show. So they need a new composer. So both Tom and the music supervisor kind of like pushed me in front of the producer and was like, hire Peter. So this weird audio course Not that I take by fire. Years. Holy shit. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, trust me, man. It was, <laughs> that was one of the most stressful years of my life. But it was just funny that there's like this, you know, teacher that I had met eight years ago in this audio course that almost caused me to flunk out of college. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's so funny how that kind of stuff works out. You know, like, um, you know, I try not to get too wooey, and I've always been like pretty agnostic when it comes to just about anything because you know we just don't know. And but I feel like a lot of times, you know, stuff like that doesn't work out that you just at the moment you think like this, you know, like you went through this whole program and now you're thinking, this isn't what I want to do. Like this could have been, but like, had you not done that, you wouldn't have, you know, taken this course and that, I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah. Totally, life, man. Life works weird like that, you know? Yeah. It's tough. Cause like, I did not enjoy my university years or college, mm -hmm. technically college back then, but I could never take any of it back because of that one course, because of totally. what that did. It's like, I can't, yeah. I can't go back and wish I hadn't done it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it was serendipitous. Mm -hmm. So you get put, you get put in front of these, the, these people, but you've got some pretty good, I mean, the, the, the original composer is vouching for you. So that, that works in your favor. So that's good. Right? Yeah. And I also, it was, it was great. We had a sort of an agreement where, I sort of had like the bat, I called it the Tom, the Tom third bat phone where anytime I was in a jam, the agreement was I could just call him up and he would mm -hmm. help me. And it was, you know, it was my first show. So I, you know, I was getting in a, in a lot of sticky situations, but, uh, but it was definitely baptism by fire. Absolutely. It was one of the most stressful <laughs> year. Uh, you know, up until then I'd only done some, some animated shorts and a bunch of commercials. So to do, you know, uh, I think it was six 44 minute episodes. It was a whole, even just a technical challenge. Like I didn't know how to. Yeah. Properly I mean, that's deliver like music scoring, and, you know, that's like scoring six, you know, on the longest side of short film that you can get. Or, you know, if you just like, you could easily say that's like scoring like three or four 
feature length films, you know, like, yeah. that's, that's yeah, a lot no. of work. Totally. But yeah, it's sort of, uh, it definitely got my chops up pretty fast. <laughs> I kind of yeah, had to have them up, you know? Yeah. And then that led to, cause you've, you, what I've noticed and, and now like just by, uh, your, your kind of brief intro with like saying you just wanted to learn how, like learn how to make like every style. That's one thing I, I noticed right off the bat when I was going through your catalog and seeing what type of stuff you score. It's like, you, you're, you're, you're all over the place. It's, it's, it's like, um, you remind me of my friend, Justin, uh, who just like, well, he's more into the coding side, but he was, me and him were in bands together playing, you know, through high school and, uh, you know, even into our thirties and, uh, now like his guitar is in the closet. He hasn't played it in years, but you know, he's, he's coding for work, but he's also just like, he's, he, it's the, the, uh, the love of the game, you know, and I get that vibe from you. So yeah, that's all falling into place. Yeah, totally. I think, um, I mean, I, I, I love, I like, I love music. I love all genres of music. And one of the games I've played, uh, over the, you know, for the last 20 years is, I've tried to force myself to learn to like music that I don't like um, just because there's all, there's obviously going to be something there. Like if people love it, if like a huge chunk of people like this music, then clearly there's something there and it's, it's my own kind of bias. that's just stopping me from enjoying it. So like, I remember, yeah, like, like mid two thousands when, you know, like electronic music was blowing up. I didn't get it. I was like, I don't understand like I don't get it. I don't understand like house music. I, to me, house music was always like, you know, the the corny stuff they'd play in shoe stores. You know, when you're like buying clothes. Um, and so I made a point. I was like, you know what? I need to learn it. I need to. I need to figure this out. And so a friend of mine gave me a nine hour long playlist of like <laughs> all the best bangers. This is before Spotify. And uh, I remember listening to the whole thing. And I remember coming at the other end and being like. I got this. And so then I was like, I'm actually going to, I'm, I'm going to make a project. I'm going to start producing this and see how good at it I can get. Um, so I started this thing called coins, which was, you know, I'm not going to say it was the most, um, you know, envelope pushing music anyone's ever written. It was, you know, it was very kind of like, I was really into Wolfgang Gardner at the time. And, uh, savant those were two guys that i was like really into what they were doing so i made this record and ended up getting a bunch of tracks signed with this swedish electronic label called substream i think they were called wait and, is this uh, before or after your your baptism by fire <laughs> we, that was we after so okay so that was that was after so one of the things that, again like i've always sort of done is anytime i'm not working on a show i usually take on some kind of project to mm -hmm. keep myself busy um and so yeah anytime like a show would end because once like i remember sort of going back to the earlier days and uh when i was writing commercials i was doing i had two day jobs and this little you know 300 foot studio that I would write these commercials out of. And I was trying to make my own record while I was there. And I remember thinking like, man, imagine what it would be like to be able to get up every day and just make music like all day and not have to run off to a day job or not have to like uh -huh. finish your job and run home and write as much as you could before bed kind of thing. Uh -huh. And that always stuck with me. I was, cause I, I remember always thinking like, man, if I'm ever in a position where I get to do that, like I'm not going to take it for granted. So even, 
when I'm not working on projects, I'm coming in and making up projects. Um, right now, for example, I'm working with this phenomenal uh, vocalist named Alex Pitkovsky, and we're making like a really authentic '90s pop record, like full uh-huh. on Britney, like full on Britney Spears. Like you, like we want it to be indiscernible from the pop music of the era. Um, and again, that's stuff that I hated. Yeah, I totally. was growing up in the '90s, hated it. Mm-hmm. Now. I have nothing but love for that stuff. I think it's so fucking fun. Like I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's you just you mentioned earlier. You were born in eighty. I'm I'm I was born in eighty four. So you know, like I'm I'm less than a year away from forty. But I feel like there's something that just happens. I think also being being married uh, helped this. But at some point, you just cross this threshold where you're like. You're not, you're t- you don't have to, I don't give a shit about trying to be cool or anything. Like, yeah. There's some stuff like there, there's music that I genuinely like that's in my soul. A lot of it, you know, from, from my childhood, but it's not just nostalgia. Like the first or Garth Brooks second and third album, like I can just, I love those records. Um, and yeah, they're, they're cheesy, and I'm sure if I didn't, if I heard them now, I wouldn't be into them. But um, yeah, you just get to this point where you're like, "What do what? Why do I have to prove to anybody? Like, I'm just gonna like yeah. what I like, you know?" And it is so liberating. Like I remember, uh-huh. like it, it really started to happen to me around like I think it was around my 30s. I was DJing a lot, and you know, I would there were there were there were tracks that like you knew would fill the dance floor, which 20-year-old, 22-year-old Peter would think we're totally not cool. Uh-huh. Like, but once, but at this point, I'm kind of like, you know what? These jams are pretty rad, you know? Like, there's something, like, like I remember, you know, classic tracks, like, you know, dropping, like, Dancing on My Own by Robin. Like, me at 18 would have despised that track. But uh-huh. that's a fucking awesome song, you know what yeah. I mean? And yeah, yeah, as yeah. an adult, like, I just don't care. Like, I do not you know, mm-hmm. I, I totally, and that's like same with these '90s pop songs. It's like they are so cheesy, but man, they're fun to produce. Um, yeah, I think they they almost it's almost like a, they 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 come this full circle where it's like they're they're cheesy, but it's you you know that at least the producer is is somewhat aware of this, and they're just leaning in to that. Yeah. It's like okay, well, whatever this is, I'm gonna make it as much of this as I can. And then, you know, the singers or whatever, they're all like, they're all children at this point, you know, like they were older <laughs> they really than you are, when yeah. I was listening to it. But now looking back, it's just like, oh, these are all just like kids. So, mm-hmm. of course, you know, they're doing weird vocal fry and weird like, you know, uh, like affectations on their voices and stuff. It's, like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Totally. It's fine. <laughs> <clears throat> the thing I've been finding about producing those tracks, too, that is really... Uh, I've been finding really, really fun is that um, everybody was using, so I went out and I bought like all of the romplers, not all of them, but like a, a whole bunch of the, the romplers from the nineties that all those producers were, were using. So what, what is that? I'm not familiar with that. Oh, a rompler. Oh, like romplers. It's like a, um, I feel like it's a, it's a pretty stupid term, but it was, it was sort of a term used for when you bought like a synth, it wasn't a sampler. It wasn't, it had, but it had preloaded samples in it. Uh-huh, so it okay. had like 
all of the drum sounds and all of the like record scratches and, and oh, stuff. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't it wasn't generating synths. It was all just sort of weird playback stuff, but you couldn't sample with them. So like, um, uh, so I've got like this one, it's called the Roland MDC one, which is like their dance Roland. It's all like dance stuff. I got uh, Emu planet. Really what did oh, you yeah. say it was called? It's called the MDC one. MDC one. I just got to see if, if, if this has ever crossed my path. It's, it's not a cool looking piece of rack. Like it's, oh, it's very lame. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. I think it's uh, it's some of the expansion cards from the JV1080 series, sort of hardwired into one box. Okay, um, yeah, I had a I had a Yamaha. I forgot what it was, but or no, it was an Akai, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And it it looked like around the same year, um, but anyways, that's that's a detraction. I don't need to. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and then like the emu stuff, like I've got one mm-hmm. called the Planet Fat, the Orbit, uh, Cork Triton, and these things are just like when you hear them and you start you start using the drums in these and the sounds in these, you realize all of these pop records from the '90s were all using the same ten things. And the thing <laughs> is, it's almost like buying it's like buying a sample library now. Like now, it's mm-hmm. like you know you buy like Deadly Drums and you hear them all over these hip hop records or whatever you know but having these 10 things it's like making pop music with the same 10 sample packs that everybody had and mm-hmm. so you hear all these like vocal groans and 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 like little har- harmony talk box riffs that are all just keys on a keyboard uh-huh. these really corny scratches that like you've heard a thousand times all those orchestral hits like, like yeah all yeah that stuff and so it's like as it's almost like if you make music with these, it's going to sound. It's almost impossible for it not so to time sound. stamped. Yeah, huge watermarked with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In all of our subconscious, like no one, you know, you. It's always going to sound like the '90s, which it's been really fun doing that. It's also been really kind of difficult wiring those into logic and like yeah, kind of producing in a very old school way. So yeah, when you find like, and I, I feel like, like I said earlier, I'm so inspired by gear. That's like my favorite thing. It's not so much like an acquisition thing. It's just more like, where is this going to lead me? And if it, mm-hmm. if it's you know with this the way you're describing the way it sounds, it's like how much is that like leading your hand as far as the composition side? Like, does it does it? I imagine it's just got to really like make that process easier to be like, okay, how do I write like a '90s person? Well, if you if I'm playing uh, through a Mesa Boogie and I've got a Jackson, my, I'm probably going to start trying to like chug, you know, do some chugging riffs or something, you know. But if I've got, uh, you know, a Telly and a and a blues man or something like that, then you know, I'm probably going to start playing some more bluesy type stuff. So if you know, I imagine it is interesting because when you think about it, like now when you hear it, it does a lot of those sounds trigger memories of like the songs of those pop songs. And so you end up writing in a very similar style to those pop songs. Mm-hmm. But when you think about like the guys that were the producers that were doing it at the time, like when you've got like Max Martin doing these like Britney tracks and these mm-hmm. Backstreet Boys tracks with nothing to go on, you know, that is actually like now you hear it and it's all cliche and eye rolling, but like when you're at the head of the curve writing this stuff, it's kind of fascinating that he kind of created this whole genre of pop. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I find yeah. very, like, he's almost like, you know, what sort of, you know, the, the Beatles did to rock. 
uh, <laughs> and Nirvana did to rock, he kind of did to pop. You know, there, there was definitely like pop sounded like this, and then all of those '90s pop bands came along and kind of went like this and kind of did this other thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I find that fascinating. Yeah, my sisters were big, big in sync fans. Their whole rooms were just their rooms were just covered with all the Tiger Beat and Teen Beat pages ripped out of the magazines and. They also loved like Spice Girls and Backstreet Boys. So like all of, but this was the, at the moment where I'm listening to like Deftones and, you know, shit like that. So I'm like, this isn't cool, but there are a few, like, you know, there are a few Backstreet Boys or NSYNC songs that if they come on, I'm like, huh, that's, totally. that's a pretty good hook. You know, I, I'm not going to like put it on and listen to it by myself, or at least I won't admit that publicly, but uh <laughs> Do you ever, and do you ever sort of think, like, do you ever realize, like, I've come to realize I missed out on a lot of good music because So that's of, funny that you bring that up. You know, like, this is one of my, like, biggest, you know, like, one, one thing I'm, like, most sad about in, in my music, you know, my, my development as a music lover. I grew up in this tiny town. My graduating class was 84 people all white people, very like right wing, you know, not like today's right wing, but like the right wing of the nineties. Um, so like there was a weird sexism and racism built into, and no, and, and, and as kids, none of us knew this, but in hindsight, it's like, I, I couldn't, I, not that I couldn't, but I wouldn't listen to, you know, female vocalists because, you know, I didn't want to get made fun of. And then uh, you know, hip hop was also off because we were skaters and we were punks mm-hmm. or we were metalheads. You know, that was our kind of our our trajectory. And so, like, I remember I had Wu Tang Forever. I for some reason I only had one disc because I think it's because I, I borrowed it from my cousin. So it's a double disc, but I just have the one disc and it's like in a different CD case. And that was like a secret CD that I listened to because I did. You know, I was the metal guy and, and stuff and. I remember just like in my, you know, college undergrad, just, you know, 2003, four, five, six, you know, that, that indie boom with Rilo Kylie and all the Saddle Creek stuff. And I remember just how like freeing it was when I was like, I fucking love Rilo Kylie and Jenny Lewis. And then that just kind of led me to like Nico Case. And, you know, it was just like, there's all this music that, and it's all just out of fear of like ridicule. But totally, kids are man. So fucking mean, you know. So yeah, I totally. Yeah, sorry about my diatribe there, but it's something that I think about a lot. I'm just like, that's no, man. Weird. I think a lot of us went through that. Like similarly, I was, you know, I was in the the punk scene where I was really into like trashy garage and punk and like Lookout Records and Estrus Records and In the Red and all, like all those sort of like, you know, your band's not cool unless you record your record on like a dictaphone kind of thing. Like like just. Like, really, like, I can't listen to very much of it anymore. But um, my sister at the time was dating this guy. This is, like, towards the end of high school, this guy named Mike. And he had a massive CD collection. And he would loan me CDs kind of, like, on the down low because I was, like, pretty embarrassed about it. But I, there were a couple, which are pretty funny, but specifically it was uh, – there were three records that kind of kicked me out of the, got me out of that world. And it was Odelay, um, 
a, the Brand Van 3000 record, whatever that was, like Glee, I think it was called. And, um, and then I remember going into the local record store because I really wanted to buy that giant Fatboy Slim record. But I waited mm-hmm. until everyone was gone and like so no one would see me. And then I went up and I bought it. And then I like put it in my jacket. I think I even waited for my friends to like go down the block. And then I like yeah, ran in and totally. did it and didn't tell anybody. Um, and then that sort of kickstarted. The thing about those records was it was the the synths and the the sampling on on all three of those records like kind of blew my mind and i didn't understand what i was listening to and i wanted to know more and i think those three records got me really excited about specifically yeah. like synthesizers and sampling and sequencing and drum machines now that you've mentioned that um yeah electronic music was also like off the table um because that you know that also wasn't cool and i did you know i didn't get into electronic music until i was in michigan for grad school I was just like, um, yeah, I think it was because of the, you know, the band Granddaddy. Yeah. Um, so I was <clears throat> huge fan of Granddaddy, uh, still am. And, uh, I think that kind of broke the ice for, for it to be okay to like something with synthesizers. So I wanted to kind of dive more into that. And that's when I like got into Daft Punk mm. and you know, I, I started going through that kind of stuff and I just wanted to find weirder and weirder stuff. And that's, you know, that's the short version of how I ended up here. But, you know, I, I would have told you that I hated Daft Punk all through high school and stuff, but I just didn't get what it was. And now I think Daft Punk is like one of the, the greatest, you know, producer duos or electronic acts of all time. Oh, absolutely. There is. <clears throat> so after high school, I'm in college. And now it's like I moved to Toronto from Halifax, big city, uh, didn't know anybody. And started to like listen to more what I wanted to listen to because I didn't really have any friends here, so I didn't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but my best friend growing up, guy named Patrick, he was like hardcore in the punk scene. He was the dude that was like ordering Maximum Rock and Roll and buying records from the mail order section to the back. Like he was the one that was turning us on to like the really weird stuff. Um, but he and I were pen pals. Again, it's 2000, so no one's really writing emails yet. So he and I would write letters all the time and we would make mix CDs and send them back and forth. And I remember nice. he, he was in uh, and he was in London and he starts sending me stuff that I'm like sending me like weird like, drum and bass stuff. He was sending me like Ronnie Size and Breakbeat era and all this stuff that I was just like, yo, like is Patrick getting into this stuff too? And it was sort of like, it was almost like we were kind of winking at each other in these mixtapes that we were making each other. And so then once I realized he was kind of into it and I was into it, then he and I started talking and like actually trading music and getting into it. But I remember the first time I put on this mix CD and yeah, Breakbeat Era came on. I'm like, why the fuck is Patrick sending me drum and bass? This is crazy. Because he was like, like he was, you know, alternative tentacles like he was yeah. deep into all that weird stuff <clears throat> excuse um, me can i pause for one second yeah, i just want to make sure this week's episode is brought to you as always by patchworks seattle and they have some exciting news they have uh the new korg arp 2600 semi-modular synthesizer 
that has been modernized in the newest 2600M model uh, with features like MIDI, a smaller form factor, and a re-engineered lush spring reverb. And that is available at Patchworks. And something else about Patchworks that I have utilized many times is it is a great place to bring in your vintage synthesizers and music gear on consignment, or you can do some trade for store credit. Patchworks is located in the heart of the Wallingford neighborhood in Seattle. You can stop by the showroom to play vintage synthesizers and shop new and used gear. Also has a ton of live events from in-store showroom sessions with local artists to in-depth workshops and classes. And here's another cool piece of information. If you are shopping online at Patchworks, free shipping for orders over $75. And then one last thing, they are updating their showroom hours. So Patchworks will be now open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from noon to 7 p.m. and Sunday from noon to 6 p.m. So it will be closed Monday through Wednesday. Once again, that's patchworks.com, P-A-T-C-H-W-E-R-K-S. Rolling. So you, your friend, you guys are sending stuff back and forth. It's it's weird to like. How old are you at this point when you guys are sending these these? I was like nineteen years old. I think nineteen or twenty at that point. I feel like at this age, at least for me, but I, you know, I've always been like a, a people pleaser. Don't like to make waves for the group or myself. But I feel like sometimes I needed somebody that I looked up to, or thought was some sort of authority on something. To almost give me permission to like something at that age. So like a cool person shows me something that I would have thought was, you know, dumb or I, I couldn't, you know, get into. Then all of a sudden, okay, now I have permission so I can do this. So is this totally. sounds kind of one of those moments where you can be like a little more like free with with you know what you're gonna put on your next mix CD, you know? Was yeah. there yeah, like, totally. oh, maybe I won't send this this one. But. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's like the classic, you know, having an older sibling situation where, you know, they turn you on to the good music. I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was sort of a similar vibe, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my friend Justin that I mentioned earlier, uh, it was his older sister, Erica, who I'm still good friends with. Um, that's that's how I got into punk, you know, like early oh, punk nice. and, and everything. So, yeah. Yeah, I kind of miss those the days of like people constantly just making – like dubbing because like it, there was a point in the 90s when it wasn't a huge imposition to ask someone to dub something for you which right? is kind yeah. of hilarious like now if someone was like hey can you put this in a box and sit next to it for 45 minutes and then flip it over you know like and then write out all the names mm-hmm. like that would be mm-hmm. like who the hell are you asking me to do that whereas in the right. 90s it was like someone you hardly do knew in your math class would do that for you and then mm-hmm. the best part I always found was what you did with the 12 minutes left on either side, you know, right. that's where yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> where my friends would stick some extra stuff that you'd be like, what the hell is this? Who's that? Mm-hmm. You know? And then the, that would sort of send you off on a journey like, oh, they put this weird band. I'm going to go find out who that is and buy that record. And, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. becomes this whole, like for me, I, I had tapes growing up where my favorite part was the. 12 the last 12 minutes of each side you know yeah yeah (laughs) which was great okay so you're you're uh you're finding more freedom you're doing dj stuff um let's see 
trying to just track everything timeline here. You you get the uh, you get the the first scoring job, um, and then so the scoring then you, job then happened the about house. yeah yeah the scoring job happened about eight years later. At that point, at that mm-hmm. when I was like nineteen twenty, I was making these weird tapes in my dorm. Um, I was calling it the Lolo Project, which didn't mm-hmm. mean anything. It was just a dumb thing I came up with. But the idea was. Um, it was music that like I was putting effort and thought into, but it was very weird. It, you know, Mm -hmm. it sounded like a mixture of like Devo and Ween. Like it was not. Oh, perfect. I love Ween. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, but it was like, not like good. It was just very strange. It was me like just playing around a lot. And I Uh made these cassette tapes and I left them all over bathrooms in Halifax. Oh, nice. People would find them and like (laughs) maybe listen to them. So that was sort of my musical output at that point. Um, but it was, yeah, it was around then that I started getting into more like hip hop production. I was using these tracker programs. At that point, I was using something called Buzz Tracker. No. What was it? Uh, it wasn't Impulse Tracker. It wasn't Buzz Tracker. It was, maybe it was Buzz Tracker, um, which was like a Windows-based um, sequencing thing did you have you ever messed with tracking software no but i've i've been looking at that um the polyand tracker yeah so i've been people are pretty excited about that yeah yeah i I, because like i don't i don't i honestly if you were to ask me to tell you what that even means like i feel like it's kind of like a a combination of a sampler and a daw or like what like i should know this i mean tracking (laughs) tracking tracking software trackers were there was like this weird scene in the nineties where you, you could just down, it was like open software. You could download mm-hmm. the trackers for free. Um, and what it like all the tracker really is, is it's just like a piano roll, but vertical instead okay. of horizontal. So you okay. have all these tracks and you, you plug your samples in and then this cursor is just going down and triggering the samples as you go down. Um, and it's okay, really so almost tweaky. like an like Ableton want, grid or something like a little bit, like a really old school Ableton uh-huh. grid. Um, okay. And it could get really, really, really tweaky. Like you could write some really weird IDM kind of like choppy AFX20 uh, mm-hmm. kind of stuff with it. Like you could get really, really intense with it. Or you could just like loop drum breaks. And so there's like a whole scene of like hip hop, uh, underground hip hop that we're using these to make beats. There was all these weird, you know, electronic guys. And so that's what I was using. And then I eventually got Logic, and I think I got Logic around two thousand five. I think I got Logic six, which was like the, as okay. soon as it went to Apple. Mm-hmm. And then that was sort of when I would say my kind of professional like studio chops started to actually build. Because at that point, that's how like, I cut my teeth as well. Was uh, I think Logic, yes, yeah, seven or nine or something like that. Um, nice, yeah. Yeah, I kind of miss it, but now I have Bitwig, which I really like. So, Bitwave. I'm not familiar with that one. Is that one of the, like, the crazy, awesome open source ones? Um, I'm not sure. I know that you like say Bitwig. Bitwig, yeah. Bitwig, right? It, okay. Yeah, so it's it's kind of like it. It feels to me a little bit like a, a Logic Ableton mashup, and then it nice. it's it works really well with it's. It's if you're gonna do like modular stuff and and even though I don't use it in this capacity, this is why I got it, but I haven't got there yet. But like expert sleepers made like a one of their ES eights, I think, that was like 
a Bitwig branding one because it just like seamlessly flowed with it. So you could just get your, not only just like multiple, um, you know, inputs and everything from Euro level into their, you know, into your DAW with like, you know, not blowing everything out, but also, uh, you know, syncing, sending and receiving your CV and whatnot. Um, right. Yeah, I've, I've yeah, really enjoyed it so it far. Yeah, it looks very Ableton-y for sure. Yeah, there's like a, so it's like Ableton. It's got like you can either do the grid kind of looking thing or you can go into a more standard like logic type view, which is I exclusively work in that. Um, but I've been thinking about exploring the Ableton thing because when I first started making electronic music, it was uh, I basically just sampled myself into logic and then uh, just cut out all these samples and loaded them into Ableton and used an APC, APC 40. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, it was, yeah the, when I was doing the sort of the old um, impulse tracker, buzz tracker sort of software stuff, what I would do, and this was something I had learned because I had read, I'd read a biography on Beck, and they talked about how they made Odelay. And they would throw up a drum break, and then Beck would just like jam to like dat, and then they would go in and just take little snippets of hooks that he wrote and mm -hmm. then load those into a sampler and then like loop them and stuff like that. I do a lot um, of so my, that's what I would do. my I would, writing that way, actually. Yeah, totally. So I would do that with my four track. I would sit there and like just jam on my four track and then I would go in and just take little snippets so it sounded mm -hmm. like I had come up with all these great hooks. But really there's like, you know, an hour of totally that no one would ever want to yeah. hear <laughs> and sometimes it's like you start working on a riff and you're like okay i want to like expound upon this and you're like this is the riff and then you like you fuck up and then all right i'm gonna take that again and you have a couple of those fuck ups and you go back and listen to it you're like oh no that fuck up is is the seed of the good part you know and then you yeah. get rid of the whole thing and you follow the fuck up you know like that's one thing totally. that like starting to record and produce my own music was like it really lit a new um a new type of fire or type of excitement in me in that like the the, uh, the happy accidents like it was mm -hmm. almost like you know uh you know getting an addiction to the, like the the thrill of the happy accident so i just wanted to record as much as possible just because crazy stuff seemed to always happen um totally so yeah and it's funny with the, the the happy accident thing that's something that i struggle with with you know you've got like you know, like something like Native Instruments Complete, where it's just like you buy it and you have a million different amazing sounding patches and plugins and, you know, like everything. You've got everything you need. But like you never, it's really difficult within that setup to fuck up by mistake and then like come up with something weird. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. 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 And that's something that I, I really miss, especially with like, like sampling. I remember similarly, like you'd sample something and then sometimes you would like be chopping it up and then you'd, you'd chop it in the wrong spot and suddenly you'd be like, Oh, that sounds wild. And obviously, oh, yeah. you know, modular synths are the king of the happy accident. Uh, mm -hmm. And so yeah. that's something, something I do sort of mix miss, but at the same time in in the in the my sort of my profession, I'm often I have to work quickly, and I often have to sort of execute a very specific idea, so that happy yeah. accidents aren't always the thing that I want. You know, mm -hmm. that but was something I that miss, I did yeah. want to get in with. Get in. Uh, it was a specific question that I had, but then after I was just kind of going through your your Instagram feed, you totally answered the question. 
I was going to ask about modular and composing because I've talked to some other composers and I know the workflow of modular and I also know the speed at which, especially in TV particularly, Mm -hmm. um, that like you don't have the luxury of time that you need with with uh, modular. Um, so you you kind of like whether or not you're more of a hardware person. You, I feel like when you're working on the types of shows that you're working on and in that medium, like you have to get in the box and use soft sense only to because you're gonna have to change timings or cues or lengthen this, shorten that, turn this down, turn that up, you know, and like. Totally. So you know what's funny? I actually have I have two approaches to to that to that kind of that world. So one mm-hmm. with the actual modular, um, I do have a rule that I ninety nine percent of the time I just don't I won't turn it on if I have a deadline. Like if I'm working on something, <laughs> I don't turn it on. Now what I do love to do is on my time off is I'll sit there and I'll make all these crazy loops and patches. I love like, you know I. I've got like four sequences sequencers in there. I love just making these like weird rhythmic. I tried to keep them from being too melodic kind of loops and I just write them and then I just bank them all mm-hmm. um, with modern DAWs. You know, you can grab anything and make it any tempo and any pitch. So right. I, I do have, you know, hundreds of modular loops that I will grab from when I'm working on a show so that I still can like have that vibe and it's still stuff that I wrote. I can still feel good about using it in right. cues. But one of the things I do, you, you can't see it from this camera angle, but I do have like a huge rack of analog synths over here. Um, mm-hmm. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's 11 of them in two drum machines. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so the way that I work with those is if I'm working on a TV show, I usually go in and I, I have them all wired up to CV so I can control them all from logic oh, and nice. they're all piped into logic. Uh-huh. Um, but I, at the beginning of the season, I basically make the patch for each synth and that becomes like a preset. So it's like my mini Moog is this sound. My pro one is this sound. Um, I actually can control my Jupiter six, um, from logic i do i do have some presets that i can access from here so is this like your way of like giving the this particular project its distinct voice so yes it might be a different cue or a different song it's still the same sounds on the same instrument kind of thing so there's a through line or it's more that i don't want to get caught up twiddling knobs totally (laughs) and that's because that just sucks up so much of your time and it's Mm -hmm. also that if i go back if they're like hey can you change this cue I can load up that cue and I mean the pitch, the tuning may have drifted a little bit, but mm-hmm. the patch is still going to be there. So I can just mm-hmm. like use it. So okay. like I recently did a, a show, it was a cartoon called the happy house of Frightenstein, <laughs> which was based on this TV series that was produced out of Ontario in the seventies and eighties called the hilarious house of Frightenstein which I highly recommend everybody Google because it is a weird show. It was this weird, <laughs> low-budget, pseudo-comedy-horror like kids show. Um, but like college kids realized if you just like smoked a bunch of weed and watched this show, it was also kind of amazing. Like It was just this uh-huh. very strange... It, so it has this huge, campy cult following now. Um, so they rebooted it as an actual kids' cartoon. 
Um, now the theme song to the original one was March of March of the Martians um, by, Oh, was it Jean-Jacques Perry? I think it was him. I'm not sure. um, and it was one of those like sixties, like switched on pop songs where it's all like mm-hmm. goofy since, you know, so that became the jumping off point for this, for this cartoon. So, I wired up all my synths into Logic and scored the whole show using all of my hardware synths. And then any software synths I did have were all uh, presets that I made using uh, the Native Instruments modular Moog. And the thing was, like, I kind of had a rule where I tried not to tune them for the whole season because that way they would kind of like slowly start to go out. And uh-huh. <laughs> if they got really bad, I would obviously tune them. But it was yeah, that... Yeah out of tuneness that gave it that quirky weirdness. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if you listen to the score, you know, it's all like spring reverbs and plate reverbs, and it's all intended to sound like this, like it's sort of pulled from the electronic music labs of 1969, you know? Nice. Nice. So, and so that's, yeah. So in cases like that, I do actually get to, you know, use all this stuff. And same, similarly, I made one patch. It was my pseudo tuba um, <laughs> patch on my modular and I use that for the, for the whole show. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I do still use them. Um, but I'm just very conscious of how I integrate them into my workflow because when I first got my modular, I would sit there and suddenly I like three hours would pass and I'd be like, Oh fuck. Like I haven't, ha- I've been dude, working on the same 30 second queue. Yeah. So yeah, last night I was just, you know, I had, you know, for, because I released this week's episode today and I was running late because I'm teaching night classes this week. And uh, I start, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bouncing out my, my file and that takes a while. So I'm like, okay, well, why that's going, I'm going to work on a patch for my next demo or something. And I just like mm-hmm. fall into the modular zone and I look up and it's like past 1am and it's been exported a long, you know, oh, it happened a while ago and I'm like, ah, shit, I got, I got lost in the <laughs> void. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's the fun, you know, I mean, if you totally. can, if you have the time for it, it's such a rewarding, fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. It's just, Definitely. Uh, if you don't have the time, you know. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, a it's, curse. It's, it's a very it's, expensive it's like, curse too. It's an expensive curse. Yeah. It's like, I always joke that it's like simultaneously the, easiest instrument to play and learn how to use and then also the hardest like because mm-hmm. like you don't if i gave you a guitar and then it said i'll be back in a week show me what you got and or if i gave you just a basic you know synth voice and said you got a week show me what you got the synth is probably going to sound a lot more closer to a song or music than what they could mm-hmm. do in guitar um but um yeah, so I'm doing a very bad job at this. I feel like, well, I'm doing a good job at the conversational aspect because this is if we were sitting down having coffee, which we kind of are just virtually or having a drink or something, this is how the conversation would go. And we wouldn't have to tie up loose ends because we were just there for the conversation. But I feel the nagging voice of the listener who's not real because we're recording in time. I just want to button up our story, you know, because I, cause I definitely I want to get to the Beastie Boys Daft Punk thing right. and i've got some specific stuff that i want to talk about with with uh you know scoring and stuff but um i also don't want to take up too much of your time so yeah no um so you start djing that's and you do the house thing there these are no these are different because the house thing comes after you make your first score 
So right. So yeah, like I was DJing for a lot. Uh, a lot of my friends are really talented um, MCs and rappers and producers, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I sort of I fell in with this group of guys in Toronto um, who go by Backburner, and it's a bunch of amazing hip hop artists. Um, and I start, I started, I fell in with them and started kind of producing stuff for them and some of them and I DJ for some of them. And I got really into like scratch DJing and, and, uh, very, it was way more sort of a hip hop based, uh, DJ world that I was in. Um, and that was, yeah, through most of my twenties, I was playing in, in, you know, garage rock bands. I was also DJing these hip hop shows and I started doing like the odd wedding and stuff like that, which is, is the worst thing. DJing weddings I, is horrendous. I Don't did ever too. Do I did too. And I, cause I was really poor and I needed the money and my friend had his own business he was doing and he, he was like, I'm done with this. So I already have these gigs. If you want them, they're yours. It's, you know, 600 bucks or whatever and i needed that money so i was like oh maybe i could get into this and yeah two of them and i was like nope never again. No, this it is, fucking sucks it awful man djing weddings worst. is the worst but i was yeah so i was doing stuff like that and then um yeah and then it was around 2008 that i got my first score and also through the, uh, the 2000s i was also writing commercials i was i had worked started working with this company called song and powder that doesn't work that doesn't exist anymore but i was doing like small like i got a Mitsubishi ad um, an Impreza ad, nice. An Epson printer ad. <laughs> like I'd, I'd like gotten, I'd landed some gigs, which was I'd made enough money to buy my first good computer, which was a a G five, a two thousand eight G five. Um. So so yeah, like that was sort of the music up until then, and then it was two thousand eight when I got that first gig and then basically my entire, all music, everything just went on the back burner and it just became all about scoring. Um, And so I did that. That was 2008, 2009, 2010 were all that first show. Mm -hmm. And that brought me up till, and then at that point, I think once I, once you get your first show, like if you've done a TV series as a composer, getting the next one is a hundred times easier because now they know you're not not going to screw up the show. So mm-hmm. that was when everything started to really take off. Um, and things started getting really busy. But then, yeah, it was sort of in between the TV shows is where I would sort of start to do my own my own music. So that's where I started doing the coins, electronic stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was where the, the daft science thing ultimately came into existence. Yeah, I was listening, like, if if you're listener, if you're out there and you like Daft Punk and you like Beastie Boys, um, then you have to check this album out. It's like it was fun. To, it was really fun. It's like totally like I have like a category of music that I call like chores music. Like when I'm like running around the house cleaning and stuff and want to have the headphones on and I want something that's gonna like, you know, keep some pep in my step and like have something yeah. that I'm gonna be, you know, like that I can focus on, but it's not like there's no real lyric. Like I know the Beastie Boys lyrics are there, and that's in this one. But like I already know all those songs so well, it's kind of cool to hear them in this new, this new uh, fashion. Um, nice, and I love that it's kind of like following the the whole like it. It was it's kind of a Daft Punk esque thing to do in the sense that like 
like Alive 2007 is my favorite Daft Punk album because it's just a mashup of all their best songs and they do like amazing versions of it. So yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a cool record. Um, Okay. So you, you start getting these ideas, just kind of like these passion projects in between. Cause like, what's like the downtime typically between uh, a scoring job? At that point I was doing about two shows a year. Okay. How long do they take? like three and a half months okay. so i would be like working my butt off for about seven months and so that would give me what five months off um that's pretty sweet and I think there would be like <laughs> other things here and there to do mm-hmm. um but it would give me like time to to do more like these days i have a hard time doing any passion projects but back then doing two shows a year it was enough to like you could pay your bills and have some time off and do some fun stuff. But the way that the, the BC Boys thing happened, it was honestly the whole thing was just a bizarre, fluky sequence of events. Um, I was going to South by Southwest to DJ for a bunch of my friends who were going down to perform and they wanted me to come back them up. So I said, sure. So they were all down there. I was flying in and I had a layover in Chicago and I had like four hours to kill. And all I had was my laptop with me, but I didn't have my sample drives or anything. Mm-hmm. So I just got my laptop out and on my laptop, I had recently downloaded, someone had released, I think right on the Beastie Boys website, you could download all of their acapellas. So I had oh, those nice. on my laptop. So I think I just like threw one in the logic and but then I realized I didn't have my sample library. So I just started grabbing like Daft Punk tracks, chopping them up into tiny little pieces and making something out of it. I don't remember what the first one was that I did, but when I landed in Austin, I got in the car and I was like, guys, I got to play you this thing I made. And I plugged my (laughs) laptop into the aux thing and they were like, dude, you need to finish this track. This is hilarious. Uh So I finished it, got back to Toronto, played it for, a couple of friends of mine that owned a graphic design company and they freaked out and they were like, you need to make an album. If you make an album of this, we will make, we will design, we'll do all the artwork for free. Uh, this has to happen. And I was like, <clears throat> okay. So I spent the next like three months just like hammering out these tracks and putting a lot of work into them. And we made it, put it up. They, they had this whole idea. They were, they were going to really try to like game reddit like they were gonna try to like really do like a marketed release and put it on reddit and make it go viral and stuff like that Mm -hmm. uh it didn't work they you know i mean that's a really hard thing to do but they yeah put it all up on reddit and then it got like some people were like oh that's cool and it got like a few downloads and over the next four years it got like maybe like 400 downloads or something it didn't get downloaded very often Mm mm-hmm but then one day I woke up, I remember it was a Tuesday and my phone was like going off. I was getting all these Facebook notifications and I went on and it was like, what the hell is going on? And at first I thought someone else had done my idea and uh-huh. their record was blowing up. And then I looked uh-huh. and I was like, oh, why is, why are people writing about my record that I did four years ago? You know? Oh, that's amazing. And, <laughs> and then it just went completely bonkers. And for a whole week it was nuts. And I was scared I was going to get sued. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I was like, I thought I was actually in major legal hot water, but no one came for me. I didn't make any money. That was like, a, I made a very I th- yeah. clear distinction. I think as long as you're not, not selling it, 
it's okay, right? Like you can put <clears throat> cover albums and stuff up if you acknowledge it's a cover or I mean it is I think it, it does get more complicated if they I don't know, if they I mean, ultimately it was their stuff that I was releasing and they could come after me if they wanted to. Um, if they could prove that I was somehow harming their brand, they could come after me, you know. But the thing is, I'm pretty sure that it actually, I think they probably sold more records, like, the week that that came out, because people were probably like, oh, yeah, the Beastie Boys, I'm going to go buy that record. <laughs> well, um, and I mean, like, Daft Punk, like, I mean, look at Discovery, is, like, is there a single, like, there, like there's a million, It's 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 a, it's a pass or what's the word I'm looking for. It's just made of tiny chunks of samples of other people's music. Yeah. So it's like, that's what Daft Punk, you know, is doing. So, and I think also I, I didn't like, think it was, yeah, you're like doing something never, fresh with it. I don't know. Yeah. I was never scared that like Daft Punk or the Beastie Boys were personally going to be pissed. Right. I was right. more concerned about the record labels. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That makes sense. Was, but nothing right. happened. I mean, everyone seemed pretty on board and, uh, it did open some doors in terms of, you know, more composing gigs. Like it definitely, um, having that on my resume has definitely made it easier to secure gigs did you, since then. Did you ever hear if any of uh, the Beastie Boys or if, uh, if Gee I never or, did. Uh, um, I, so like we tried, it's really hard to like get an audience with anyone that matters in those camps. Well, you know, especially we, Daft Punk. They're so elusive and like private and yeah. Yeah. Like we tried um, getting just sort of uh first, like I really wanted to get the record sanctioned. I wanted someone to just like put it out. Like I was like, look, mm-hmm. man, I don't even care if I don't make any money. Like, can we just put this out? You know? And yeah, so that, yeah. but we never really got very far with it. The most we got was, my manager called someone at their record label because he had someone on the inside and was kind of like, do you guys know about this? And he was like, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, you guys mad? And they're like, should we be mad? And he was like, no. He's like, all right, I think we're good. It's like, okay. <laughs> it was this sort of like weird conversation that was like, they didn't want to sanction it, but they didn't really care. They didn't want to say this is okay. But right, right. You know. But, uh, but yeah, we never, we never got very, very far with that. The closest I ever got was, I know that one of the producers of Paul's Boutique, uh, heard it and thought it was cool. So that was cool. Yeah. I mean, right there, that's, that's a win. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's funny too, because like, that seems to be like, I don't know if it was because of that project that you just kind of kept going, not that you're making full albums, but like I saw you did, you know, like you had this funny post on Instagram where you said, you know, my kids were listening to Hanson and it was driving me nuts or something. And then I, I had a dream that it like, that was mashed up with Buster Rhymes. So I guess I have to do it now. And you like did this mashup of Buster Rhymes and Hanson. And it sounds, it sounds fucking hilarious just to hear that. It's like two worlds that you'd never think of colliding. It worked. Yeah. You know, it worked. But here's the, here's the <laughs> thing where you, th- you think those two worlds are, are, are not close, but they're actually closer than you might know. And this yeah, is, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the, the guys that produced Mbop also produce Odele and Paul's boutique. Oh, wow. Holy shit. Okay. Yeah. So it was the dust brothers. Um, and so that's why if you listen to it, it, there's actually like a sampled drum break and weird scratching in it. 
and it's like yeah oh, yeah yeah some hip-hop producers actually produced this which That's is pretty funny hilarious. so it's actually oh, like God. it's not that those worlds aren't as far as you think which is sort of i love hilarious. that that's great um okay well we're already over an hour and i know you're a very busy guy family all that so i'm not going to take up too much more of your time but i do um i just want to say like congrats on on the working moms thing like what season now is it, is it seven like, so we just finished season. The, the series finale yeah seven seasons which to be honest like for a canadian production seven seasons is like a great run so we're that's, all really proud of that's it. a long run yeah yeah um i'm pretty i'm pretty sad it's over it was a really fun project to work on it was very it scratched it definitely scratched a producer's itch you know like the score is very like hip-hop infused sample weird you know there's like a lot of like a lot of that kind of stuff so that was it was really fun to do i'm sad it's over but yeah man yeah seven seasons so thank you it was yeah and i also wanted to just the uh was it the russian dog what was the russian dog russian subway dogs i was rocking that um that soundtrack as well you know a chore that's a another great chores chores uh album but like just uh you know to kind of circle back on something you said a little bit ago is you know you just like you like to see if you can do the thing that is you know whether it's the 90s uh pop this is like great 8 or 16 bit you know like it it's just it's so it's like spot on but it's also like i feel like you're definitely putting your own personal and kind of um a uh, contemporary spin on it and like I usually don't like to get like listen to like eight bit or sixteen bit style like video game music consecutively, but like I was rocking out to that album. It's really fun. And uh, thank you. I saw that the vinyl album, got pressed, and it's really cool. Yeah, that album was really fun to work on um, because so I worked on that lost on that album over a three month stint in Los Angeles. Went right after my wife and I got married, we went to LA for three months and we had this beautiful little house up in the hills of Silver Lake. Um, so it was really, it was like, I have great memories of like getting up every day and it was like, you look outside, you can see like the Hollywood Hills and mm-hmm. you can see the observatory and the Hollywood sign. It's sunny every single day, mm-hmm. leaf blowers perpetually going off in the distance. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I would just sit there and work. And actually, this is sort of a, another tie-in with the Beastie Boys that was kind of funny. Um, so I would be working on this, on this, just sort of looking out the window and working, and it was really fun. And we ended up um, – the short version is we ended up at a party at Tom Green's house. Oh, wow. And okay. Tom Green's record was produced by Mike Simpson, who's one of the Dust Brothers who produced mm-hmm. Odelay and Beck and all that. And that's how I kind of know about the, some of these weird sort of – connections and so we got talking and he explained he's like oh yeah like i know exactly where you live the house that we you know worked on worked with beck on and with beastie boys on is like right around the corner from you and he described the house and Uh so i realized when i was sitting there working i could actually look down and see the exact house that like holy shit (laughs) massive recordings were made in like i could go Uh back and throw an avocado off the avocado tree and hit, and hit the house. That's so there cool. was like this really kind of awesome. It was it was a really inspiring thing. Just sort of. I was gonna say I could see that kind of like 
even if you are already feeling like inspired and having fun working on it, I could, like, I know personally, if I, if I got that information that that would, that would give me a, some sort of boost that would maybe I'd be up a little earlier or work a little later or something like that, you know? Yeah. Like, or just, you're also just like present. Like every time you take a break, you sort of totally the windows mm-hmm. open you take a breath, you look outside, you admire how beautiful, you know, the hills of Silver Lake are and then mm-hmm. you get back to work and, yeah, it was so that record, that Russian Subway Dogs record, has like a really, uh, it's got a, it's got like a permanent place in my heart just because of how, yes. what a great space I was in when I wrote that record. I love so something I often talk about is um, you know music being kind of like this, uh, you know, like a, a time capsule. You know, so like when me and my wife go, we go on a weekly road trip every year for our, our um, anniversary, and we go and camp. And it's been my tradition to make a playlist full of stuff that we don't really know yet and that we want to get mm-hmm. to know. And now every time I hear this song, oh, that's Crater Lake 2022. Oh, this is Yellowstone 2020. And it's just like, and it brings me back to that feeling. But I also get that with certain things that I make too. And it's, I, yeah. I love that. I love that phenomenon with our brains that it's almost like it's just this sense memory that gets unlocked. And it's it's weird that the campground by Crater Lake has a very specific physical feeling. It's not just the memory. It's the physical feeling that is just Crater Lake 2020. Dude, it's I weird. do the exact same thing. I, That's that awesome. That is so funny. I literally do the exact <laughs> – except it's usually just a new record. So, like, I was recently in Los Angeles for five days and – I I decided when I was going there I was going to listen to the new record uh, by this artist named Johnny who just came out J A W N Y check it out awesome okay. music uh, great he's blowing up um, but I listened to that record nonstop because I knew I was like this is going to become my you know L A in March record and then same mm-hmm. with I remember the very first time I was in Los Angeles the uh, uh, Jurassic Five Power Numbers record came out and oh. I have this memory J Five yeah that's oh, a dude. Great that's a great album. I remember putting that album on, and we were staying at the Hollywood, is it the, called the Roosevelt? Is that what it's called? Mm, um, it's like sure. right in Hollywood, and I remember putting the CD on and looking out the window and just like seeing the vastness of Los Angeles while this very like Los Angeles record is playing. And now I can't listen to that record without thinking totally. about it. Totally. So now I do the same thing. Whenever I go somewhere, I pick like a new album that I haven't listened to yet, and I just like, mm-hmm. destroy it yeah. and permanently yeah. imprint it on my brain. So Bill Callahan is um, my like, if you know, favorite any music. Like he's 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 at the top of favorite oh, nice. anything. I love Bill. Callahan. Um, and I just I found out about Bill Callahan because I was going to Austin for the first time, and somebody you know, I put out on Instagram. Give me some Austin artists to listen to because I want to listen to the music of the city that I'm going to. And so I listened to Apocalypse, and it totally. But yeah, so Crater Lake 2022, uh, Grace Ives. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Grace Ives, but I'm not. No, really great, like bedroom pop, like low, not really lo-fi, but definitely like she produces everything. She writes all the songs, and she's funny, and she has a great voice. Um, yeah, and so yeah, it's just I have all these. It's it's I love finding new stuff, and you know, you start subtracting. Okay, me and my wife like we'll give every song a few listens, but like. 
we start making a new playlist of like, these are the jams. And then we listen to that playlist on repeat because we have to get to know the songs pretty intimately for this phenomenon to happen. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a very nerdy thing to do, but I love it. Oh, <laughs> me too, man. That's awesome. Um, okay. Well, all right. So I, we, we got to wrap this up because, uh, yeah, we're going long. But I, I also, cool. just because anybody who does, you know, like a lot of, you know, a lot of my listeners are musicians. I'd probably say most, and you know, they they vary from maybe they want to do gaming soundtracking or or you know scoring for for TV or movies. Um, so, do you have any like if somebody out there right now is starting their journey and they want to start uh, either learning how to do that or how to like try to find work? Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I mean. This is sort of the million dollar question. Uh, it gets asked a lot, and everybody has a different, weird answer. Um, well, like yours was very specific. Had you not taken that class, yeah, met right. that teacher, you know, like so, so go take a weird art class, art audio <laughs> <Yeah>. course, and <laughs> at, at art college. And um, no, um, the thing that I think is the most important. I mean, obviously, music is first, you know, hone your craft, be as good at writing music as you can, write music every day, write as many different genres and styles as you can, just master the the music part uh, first and foremost. And then the next part, it sucks, but it's it's networking. It is, uh, so much of it is... You have to meet Who you know. And I don't think that's, I mean, that's a frustrating thing, but it's also not that bad a thing. I mean... I made, I remember I made a rule early on in my career where I remember I went, I tried to network once I went to an event and I had business cards and I tried networking and I just felt Mm -hmm. like such a nerd. I hated it. I felt awkward. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to network anymore. I'm just going to like try to make friends with people. I just like, like just authentic friendships, just like Mm -hmm. I'm going to get to know people in the business and I'm going to build real relationships with them, you know, and get to know these people. And that that way, at the end of the day, like maybe, maybe this person isn't going to help my career, but now I've got someone rad I can hang out and drink beer with, you know what I mean? And that to me, like worst case scenario, that's a pretty great scenario. And so that was something I stopped like sort of networking, but that being said, how like, getting to know people in the, you can't, it's not about just like getting a website and making a SoundCloud and, you know, joining the union or whatever, you Mm -hmm. know, local organization you have. Um, In Canada, there's a great thing called the Screen Composers Guild of Canada. And that's uh, an awesome resource for people who are starting off and people who are actually like experienced composers. Um, That's a great way, a, a great place to start. But also, Look for meetups, look for communities, look for other composers. All of my early gigs came from other composers. It wasn't like I met a director who suddenly got famous and started hiring me. It was, I I knew a bunch of composers who knew I was trying to break into the industry. And when they got too busy to do some of the less cool work or less Mm -hmm. (laughs) financially rewarding work, you know, they would get me to do it. Mm-hmm. And that was how a lot of my early gigs um, happened. And that's honestly, that's something that I get a lot of joy in doing now. If if I can't take on a project, um, I like to be able to hand it off to somebody I know that's trying to get into it. Um, mm-hmm. 
so that I think that's the main thing is there really is uh, you have to really steep yourself in the the community, but you also have to make music and you have to release it and you have to get it out there. People have to know what you're doing and who you are. You know, like mm-hmm. if you're just sitting in your room making music that nobody's going to hear saying that I want to be a composer, that's not, you're not, nothing is going to happen. You know, yeah. like at least just get it online, get it out, have it out there, you know, mm-hmm. um, Staff science being a perfect example. If I just made that and left it on my hard drive, it never, mm-hmm. no one would have ever heard it. But we, right, we, you know, we put it on a free streaming service, and then that happened. Right. So yeah. So I think the main thing is obviously craft first, but also steep yourself in in the community. Join, you know, guilds, clubs, communities. Take people out for coffee. You know, composers love coffee. We drink a lot of it. Um, be respectful of their time, but you know, I've, I I kind of have a rule where so many people when I was starting off were so awesome about, um, meeting with me and, 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 and having coffee or lunch that now I really do my best. If someone asks me to do that, I, I really do my best to try to fit it in, especially also like, that was another thing I find, like every time I'm in Los Angeles and I'm hitting up other composers and producers and directors, Mm -hmm. the amount of time that, people are willing to just meet with me like some weirdo from Canada. Like Mm -hmm. that to me, it, it means a lot. So I just try to like spread that good vibe back into the world. Absolutely. I have, I had the same experience, you know, starting this podcast, I started as, Hey, this is my journey of getting into and learning about modular by talking to people who are already into it. So I was like a major outsider and had no business starting this show. But like one of the early things that happened that was just like, what the fuck? This is like, he didn't have to do that. That was so cool. But DivKid like reached out. He, he promoted like, oh, hey, there's this new podcast. And then he also reached out and said, if there's anything I can do to help or if you want me to come on, that'd be great. And I'm like, this is DivKid. This is the modular nice. guy. Um, and he kind of set a precedent, precedent for me um, that I've kind of found out like everybody in modular, like all the makers and all the big, you know, all the big, big names. I know modular is very like a small community, but um, the graciousness of the people who are successful, you know, uh, is, Mm -hmm. uh, is something that I try to keep in mind and and pay for it. If I ever get the chance, not to say that I've become like one of them, but um, you know, like I've I've just been doing this for a long time, you know, and I, so yeah, and then another through line is, uh, you know, when I ask label bosses to give any advice to how do you seek out a label, they say pretty much the same thing that you just did. It's all about meeting people and truly finding your people, like your friends, and mm-hmm. also like go out there, try to find a scene. You never know, whoever you meet out there, it might not, you might not become a a, a composer for film or TV, but it might lead to something else that is better suited for you or you're more passionate about. Like I didn't think I was going to be into modular synthesis nor podcasting. I wanted to be a rock star, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> but I lo- I'm so yeah. glad it's this and not rock star. Cause I probably would have died, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I, I, this was so much fun. I really appreciate your time. Um, I feel like there's so much more I wanted to ask you about. So we're going to have to have you on again. I'm no, yeah, I'm man, not anytime. shy about, uh, repeat guests but my final question and it could take it however you want is there anything you would like to shout from the modular mountaintops 
Anything I'd like to shout from the modular mountaintops? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I would like to shout um, to my neighbors downstairs in my studio. I got my first noise complaint this week, and I would like to shout a really loud apology. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I actually feel really bad. I think I drove them all crazy last week. I got, oh, like, man. Yeah, I... Uh, I was waiting I for your this, like, uh, Canadian side to show, and I think I just got it. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I just I was recording a lot of guitars last week, and I think uh, I I walked into work this morning with a sternly letter, sternly worded uh, email oh, no. from the property management company. So I'm very I'm sorry. I feel bad. <laughs> Send them this episode, and uh, yeah, totally. and then they can get it in person. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, awesome, man. Anytime. Yeah. All right. That's our episode. Thank you so much for coming back to Podular Modcast. I want to thank Peter for coming on the show. Links to everything uh, that Peter does in the show description. Also, thank you to our sponsors, Novation, After Later Audio, Patchworks, 4MS, New Systems Instruments, and of course, thank you to everybody who supports the show on Patreon. If you would like to help keep the LEDs blinking over here at PodMod, head over to patreon.com forward slash modcast. Thank you to Leo Wolf for submitting his track. Don't forget to go check that out. And if you would like me to share some of your music during a PodMod intro or outro, uh, head over to the Discord. There is an invite link uh, in my bio on Instagram. And if you can't find it there, shoot me a DM. We'll get you all squared away. Um, I think that's about it for this week. This week's secret word is Jackrabbit. Until next week.